0: Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Heavenly Representatives by Pastor Sean Wood. Father, I pray that as we open your word this morning that you'd open our hearts, that you'd open our eyes to see more of you in your wonderful and glorious name. Amen. Amen. If you've got your Bibles and would like to meet me in Romans chapter 2, we'll finish off Romans chapter 2 this morning. Uh, How many people here, just a quick show of hands, how many people here own a full-wheel drive? There we go. Uh, Too expensive, brother, aren't they? (laughs) That's exactly right. Uh, For those that own a full-wheel drive, I won't embarrass you, you can put your hands down now. I wonder how many of those full-wheel drives go off the road? When I was in the forestry, we yes. When I was in the forestry, we lived and died by four wheel drives. We took, we took four wheel drives where you should not take legs. That's a, that's a story for another day. But uh, interestingly enough, something I noticed in Tasmania, but I also notice up here in Queensland, is that there's an enormous amount of four wheel drives. Whether it's Utes, Prados, whatever it is, everybody seems to have a four wheel drive, but nobody seems to go off the bitumen with their four wheel drive. I <laughs> noticed that. Not so many. Some people do, but not so many people go off the road with their 4 wheel drive. You have an extra gear stick, you have an extra diff, you probably have a, a transfer case, you, you might be able to lock your diffs, whatever that looks like, you have all the potential to go off the road, but you never do. And Paul now wants to make a shift as he's working his way into his argument. He now wants to make a shift from a universal umbrella this morning, and he's going to point the finger squarely at the Jews. And you see, the Jews were like so many Christians today. (laughs) Got all of the potential, but nobody ever goes off road. He wanted to speak to Jews who profess many things, but don't live that. How many people here have heard the name Christopher Hitchens? Be interesting, yeah, Christopher Hitchens, uh, recently passed away in the last couple of years, a staunch atheist and avid smoker of cigarettes and drinker of Black Douglas Scotch, apparently, I don't know I was told. But uh, interestingly enough, I had a bit of respect for Christopher Hitchens, even though he was an atheist, I had respect because of one thing, what he claimed to believe he lived And uh, I was recently blessed to read a biography of the life of Christopher Hitchens by a guy by the name of Larry Taunton. Now, Larry Taunton uh, was a very good friend of Christopher Hitchens who debated him many times. And in his dying years, Christopher Hitchens couldn't travel by aeroplane, so they decided they would drive across America to appointments to a debate. And the whole idea was to separate, it turned out to be about eight or nine months, in the car, travelling along, going through the Gospel of John. And the title of the biography can be a little bit deceiving because the title says The Faith of Christopher Hitchens, and I'm thinking, hang on a second, I didn't hear anything about this. And so I read the book all the way to the end and and Larry Taunton confesses, he says, you know, in the dying moments, I don't know what Christopher's decisions were. He says, but in the time I spent with Christopher, he says, I know this. He was faced with all the same evidence for a creator that we are faced with. He grappled with all the scientific discoveries that everybody else grapples with. But there was one thing inside of Christopher Hitchens, he was looking for somebody to prove him wrong. What Christopher Hitchens was deeply searching for was to, to run into Christians who are living what it is that they profess. We're going to be blessed in a couple of weeks when Mark Connor comes. And I, I'm, going to, I'm not going to quote him verbatim, but I'm going to paraphrase a testimony. I heard Mark speak at a conference once where he had been to a conference and there were many Christian speakers, uh, but the most profound speaker of the weekend was an atheist guy who got up at the end. They had invited him to speak and, and he gets up and speaks. But basically the atheist says, at the end of the day, he says, we can disagree. He says, but if that's what you believe, if you believe everything you say you do, then live what you believe. And Mark said that was the greatest challenge that came from the whole conference it's from an atheist. And Paul wants to make a shift now as he's talking to people who are in, <clears throat> under God's judgment. He makes a shift and he uses the word but in verse 17. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and uh, I'm going to bring this uh, probably a little bit closer to home in a moment but but in in Paul's time to be a Jew meant that you were in covenant with God it meant that you had the revelation of God it meant that you were somebody who, who had all the knowledge of God but but they missed the purpose of that they had missed the purpose of what that was. We're going to unpack what that purpose was. Paul now makes a shift and he says to these people, he says, but if you call yourself a Jew, we are talking about everybody else previously, but now we're talking about the Jews. And he uses a very powerful word next. It's the word rely. Rely. Uh, If you have your Bibles in hardcover, can you please underline, circle and highlight the word rely? Because by the time we finish today, that word is going to be one of the most important ones we look at. Because what, what Paul is now saying to the Jews is, he said, you call yourself a Jew. He says, and you rely on the law and you boast in God, you know his will, you prove what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. There is nothing wrong with the law. That's not what Paul is saying here. There's nothing wrong with what Moses has handed down. There's nothing wrong with the revelation given by the prophets. What is the problem here is where your reliance is. He says, the problem is where you rely. You're relying on them. They were never meant to be what you place your full trust and confidence in because that's what that word rely is. There was a man that wrote an entire gospel that wanted to do, that had one aim. He writes an entire gospel to both Jews and Greeks with the one aim that they would shift their reliance. The man was named John. He uses the word believe, which means exactly the same as that. He uses it 99 times in his gospel. And every time he does, it's a verb. It's about where we place the fullness of our trust and confidence. And for the Jews, Paul says, you've got it in the wrong place. You're trusting systems. Nothing's changed in 2000 years, by the way. We still seem to build these hills. We're trusting formulas. We're trusting systems. Let's just, you know, as churches, let's just start more programs. We need an evangelism program. We need a program for this and a program for that. Paul says you've got your reliance in the wrong place. You know, God could do whatever he wanted to do in spite or despite us. The fact that he chooses to work through us is a glorious and profound truth. Paul says, if you call yourself a Jew... And you rely on the law and boast in God and you know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. That's the whole purpose of Israel. Later on, as we work our way through the book of Romans, we're going to look at words like foreknowledge. We're going to look at words like predestination. Words that apparently scare people, but they don't have to. Because quite often what we miss in those words is the purpose behind them. You see, God deliberately chooses Israel. He sets his love and affection on Israel. He forms this little nation in the middle of nowhere where there's all these big powers around them. But the whole idea is that you would display my light and be a guide to everybody else around you. That's the purpose. The purpose is I'm going to lavish my love on you so that everybody else can see how much I love people. You know, Rick Warren, I, I appreciate Rick, Rick Warren deeply. Has everybody here heard of Rick Warren? We've all got purpose-driven lives now. Thank you, Rick Warren. But, but Rick Warren, he says, you know, in my time as a pastor, which a church of 20,000 people at Saddleback, he's not doing too bad. But he says, in my time as a pastor, a lot of the times people come and say, you know, I, I struggle to have affections for Jesus. You know, I struggle to have this, this inner fire and flame. And I, and I struggle in all the... And, Rick says, you know what, I want to, I want to sum it up for you, what the, what the universal problem is. He says, is we don't have a fuller grasp of what, how much God loves us. He said, if you knew how much God loves you, you wouldn't have a problem with returning those affections to him. You wouldn't have a problem with those areas that you're struggling with because you would throw them off if we understood the fullness of the love that God has for every single one of us. And God wants everybody to know that. Bear with me as we work through these because uh, we're going to bring this home in a moment. Verse 20, you are an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Now, if this verse sounds like practice what you preach, that's exactly what Paul is trying to say in these verses. If you say you have the knowledge of God, if you say you have the revelation of God, if you say you have all of this, then why don't you teach yourself? Why is it, the next verse, and here's a really scary verse, why is it that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you? Rabbi Zacharias, one of the most sought-after speakers of this time. He says, whenever I am asked what I do for a living, he says, I tell people, I travel the globe answering people's deepest and most profound questions. He says, and I spend my time doing that. He says, and I consider the fact that I have a lot of answers. He says, but here's a question I never can answer. He says, it's the one question I struggle to answer. No matter where I go, I get the same question and I can't answer it. And he says, so many people stand up and say, if you serve such a supernatural, powerful, loving God, then how come we don't see more of it in the people of God? Ravi says, I can't answer that question. He says, when people stand up and ask me, how come we see just as much dissension and hatred in the church and disunity in the church as we do outside, if your God is real, why do we not see that in a great attraction amongst your people? What an enormous challenge. And we can take that comment however we like, but at the end of the day, they've got a point. The book of Malachi, when it comes to... uh, the blaspheming of God among the Gentiles. It's a hard issue. It's an issue of honouring God. In the book of Malachi, people think it's written because of giving money and all those sorts of things, but that's not what it's about. In fact, the the whole prophecy is is all about the fact that Israel are dishonouring God. And in chapter 1, God actually says something that you'll never read anywhere else in the Bible. God says, you know what? Close the temple. He says just just shut it all down tell the priest to go home I'm paraphrasing now tell the priest to go home send the bulls back to the paddock and just just close it down because Just prior to saying that statement, God says, you say that you honour me, but when you come to bring your sacrifices, you bring your blind defect lambs, you bring me what is left over. When you come to me with your tithes and your offerings, you bring me what you think you can afford. You you say that you're honouring me, but your life is telling a completely different tale. That is the prophecy of Malachi. And it gets to the point where God says, you know what, if that's the case, shut the temple. And I was challenged this week because I began to ask myself a question. If God walked in here, is there enough honor in this room to keep the doors open? And I'm I'm not talking about you guys, I'm talking about me. Does my life live a life in such a manner that God would say, keep the doors open? I wonder if we can read these verses quickly again. I wonder if I can take the liberty just to change a few words. But you call yourself a Christian. You rely on the scriptures and the gospel. And do you know, I want to make a statement and I'm going to qualify as we move along. You can have all the trust in Christianity and no faith in Christ. Before you sack your pastor, wait till we get to the end. You call yourself a Christian. You rely on the gospel and the scriptures. You you consider yourself to be a guide and a light. You who are teaching others, teach yourself. Paul goes on and says... It's interesting what he does here. He says, While well, you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the Lord, dishonour God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul has actually done something very smart here. He gives the Jews no back door because uh, sometimes we forget that there are actually sin falls into two completely different brackets, and Paul covers both of them. Sin falls under the first bracket of commission. And and a sin of commission is where we willfully violate the laws and the commandments of God. That might look like you who preach against stealing, do you steal? We know it's a violation of God's law to steal. We know it's a violation of God's law to commit adultery, but hang on a second, depends on what church you go to today, by the way, whether committing adultery is still a sin or not. It's, It's amazing how we can keep pouring water on things like that. But then Paul goes on and says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? There was a practice amongst the Jews at this time where they would go into temples, rob the temples, take all the idols out in the name of God and then go and sell those idols in the marketplace. Stop the bus. And the second bracket is the sins of omission. And this is where we don't do what we know we should do. I love that song by Keith Green, Oh Lord, You're Beautiful. Well, he, we need more Keith Greens. Uh, it's like, Lord, can you send us another Keith Green? He was awesome. I, I appreciate Keith Green immensely. But Keith Green, just before he sings that song, he gives a little bit of a blurb and he says, you know what? He says, this song came out of staying up late one night and I, and I was praying to the Lord and I wrote him a letter. And Keith Green says, I wrote a letter to the Lord saying that my heart has become callous and my heart has become distant from you. And he says something very profound. He says, not because of anything that I am doing, but because of everything that I'm not doing. He realised... There was so much that was keeping him from God because of what he was not doing. Now, men, I want you to bear with me this morning as we move into an area of a little bit of fragility called circumcision. All the, all the men just got a little bit uncomfortable in their seats. But we need to talk about circumcision because Paul now is going to talk about circumcision. He says in verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, before I had set the date for baptism, I had already planned out how the series of Romans was going to go. I I didn't really know that these two were going to coincide, but I praise God they did because if anybody in this room is wondering what is circumcision all about, exactly the same as baptism. Circumcision is an outward sign of an inward reality. Problem with the Jews had got to the point where they had placed all their faith and trust in circumcision. Now, I want to unpack the fullness of what circumcision is, and I can only do that by sneaking back to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17 is where we see the beginning of the covenant of circumcision. Now, I'm sorry, men, we, we don't want to think about this too much. I get all of that. But... God has already made one covenant with Abram. Very important what happens here. And three very prominent things happen throughout the course of uh, this covenant of circumcision. The first one is, if we start at verse one, it says, when Abram was 99 years old. So just a, just a, just a bit older than Tony. Tony. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the Lord God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. If you're taking notes this morning, please write this enormously important truth down. Before expectation comes revelation. Notice what happens here. The Lord appears to Abraham, then comes the expectation of what follows that. And when there is revelation, whether it's revelation through his word, revelation in any form or fashion, there comes an expectation with that. The expectation is that you would walk before me and be blameless. But there might be some people sitting here going, hang on, you said Abram. Yes, I did say Abram, because something very, very, very important happens as we work our way through. Abram, if we come down to verse four, behold, my covenant is with you. You shall, know, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. What's actually going on here is the best way to understand what is about to happen is... Abraham and God are about to enter into a covenant that looks and sounds a lot like marriage. This is why marriage is so important. This is why the enemy makes an assault on marriage. A covenant in the time of the patriarchs will unpack. A covenant was enacted between two people and they didn't have pen and ink like we do today. So they would act out the consequences of breaking that covenant. So in Genesis 15, uh, Abraham cuts, or Abram at that point, cuts an animal into two pieces and God walks between the animal. Notice he never sends Abram between the animal. And what what is happening is when you walk between the two pieces of the animal, you are saying, if I break this covenant, may what happens to these animals happen to me. God knew full well that Abram would never uphold his end of the covenant. So 2,000 years later, he took the punishment for Abraham. But something enormous happens here. It happens also for Jacob later on. The word Israel means he who wrestles with God. We have a whole nation that wrestles with God. But Abram goes to Abraham and when a male and a female are married, ten, basically what happens is two identities become one. You actually discard one identity and you gain a completely new identity. You don't, you don't change your looks, you don't do anything like that, but you, change, you go from me to we. And what happens at a wedding, I'm praying what happens at weddings for the for the foreseeable future anyway, is that two people will stand at the altar and they will make a covenant with each other. They will make an agreement with each other, and there is a name change that happens. And the lady adopts the man's name. And Abram here has adopted a portion of God's name, the Yah. God's name is Yahweh, Abe Yaham. There is a joining together. Abram loses his single identity in this covenant. What Abram is doing is it's just like standing at the altar with God and saying, you are for me, the only one. If there is, if there is one thing God wanted from Israel, and if there is one thing that God wants from everybody in this room, it is your single hearted devotion to him. He doesn't want you to have anybody else. Then God says, if we come down to verse 11, it says, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and me and you and it's important to know this what is circumcision circumcision the covenant has already been made there's an identity change there's an agreement between abraham and god and circumcision is the sign of what has happened already on the inside abram is standing there going you're the only god for me i'm fully committed to you and what this is like putting on the wedding ring But for those of us that are married here, and even if you're not married, you can fully understand, and this is what Paul wants to highlight amongst the Jews now, is you know what? You can wear that ring all you like, but marriage is something that's in the heart. Because if you're married and you've got a ring on your finger and it's not a matter of your heart, you will go and live your life however you want. The ring doesn't stop you running around with other men or other women. The ring doesn't stop you doing any of those things. The ring is a sign of what's in here. And what Paul is going to say now is, you guys have got it all wrong. You've got your reliance on the ring and the ceremony and the outward sign. And I want to make another very bold claim this morning. Every single person in this room needs to be circumcised. And all the men said, I'll catch you later, Pastor. You preach that somewhere else. Let's come back to Romans 2 while I justify that. It's exactly what we've just unpacked. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, it's only a sign. If there's no inward reality, if there's no inward revolution, it's just a mere outward performance. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Or no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly. Outwardly, some people are going to be baptized today, and I want to make it very clear that you can be baptized and not a Christian, not saved, and you can be fully saved and in relationship with Jesus Christ and not be baptized. But just as what these guys were expected to do, that's what's going to happen this afternoon. This afternoon, some people, about half a dozen we have, that have confirmed. They're going to put their hand up and they're going to say, what I'm doing right now is an outward sign of an inward revolution. I am now declaring by an outward act what God has done on the inside of my heart. I have a new identity in him. The old identity has gone and I am raised into a new identity. What a beautiful and profound symbol that is. And so therefore, I promise to bring you back up. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. It's not something that just pertains to the outside. You can have religion equals all of the outside without any inner reality. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. I want to make the claim here this morning that everybody needs to be circumcised because circumcision is a matter of the heart. And being circumcised in your heart looks like, just like Abram did, it looks like standing up and saying, You know what? God, you're for me. I don't care what everybody else thinks, I don't care what anybody else says. I want you to cut away everything of the old me that I can live for you. And so on that basis, I want to tell everybody in this room that you need to be circumcised, but circumcised in your heart. You might be sitting here saying, how does that happen? Well, Paul wants everybody to know that observance to to rules and regulations, even arguing about doctrine and getting, we need doctrine. (laughs) Please hear me when I say today, we need doctrine. And we need people who are who are adamant about doctrine. But you can have all the doctrine and know Jesus. You can have... You you can place all your faith and trust in Christianity but have no relationship with Christ. And you can have a relationship with Christ... When I, I can remember when I was first born again, I, I didn't know anything. Nothing's changed. I know what you're thinking. Nothing's, 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 my, my children will tell you nothing's changed. But, but I can remember one thing that was absolutely profoundly true. And that was that Jesus had done something inside here. And I, and I just wanted to tell everybody about it. But when I was in high school, uh, I got to grade eight. And the high school I was at said, you know what? We'd actually prefer it if you never came back. It's a polite way of saying, get out. And I went from there to another high school, which was a pretty rough high school. But between grade 8 and grade 10, I had actually made it to prefect. Granted, if you went to the school, it wasn't hard to be prefect in that school. But but something between grade 8 and grade 9 had happened inside of my heart. Something changed very deeply inside of me. I was born again in the Salvation Army. And do you know what? I hardly knew anything. And I can remember saying, uh, by the time we get to grade 10, I can remember saying to this lovely little lady we had in the church, look, I don't know... I don't know the fullness of all this stuff here. I don't understand it all, but, but I need someone to come and help me and come into the school because I just want to share all this with the school. And we used to have Bible studies once a week at the school. We used to get about 10, 12 kids there and, and they used to yell at us and swear at us and we didn't care, but there was some kids there that needed some help. But, but then by grade 10, they, I, I'd become prefect. And I had to wear a blazer and I had a badge. So when my kids asked me, hey dad, where's your badge? I, I had one once. And I actually realised that that blazer was, just, was really just a piece of clothing. It was actually recognition of influence. There was an expectation that came with that blazer. And all the blazer was was recognising something that was on the inside. And my personal testimony is you can't circumcise your own heart. You, you, we, we try to form our own moralism. We even have people that grab hold of the gospel and say, you know what, We should just maybe we should just be good to one another and do to others as, as, as you would do to yourself. Yeah, all of that's good. And, and I accept all the teachings of Jesus, but do you accept Jesus? Has your heart had an inward revolution by that God-man that walked out of the tomb 2,000 years ago by the power of God? And if you're sitting here this morning saying, how does that happen? How do I get to that place? It is, it is an absolute work of the Holy Spirit. We've, we, we barely have English words that can describe what happens on the inside. I notice in the epistles of Paul, all the churches were suffering enormous persecution and trials. And he never, he never asks that the trial would be taken away. He never asks that the persecution would stop. But he does ask that they would have an inward reality. I pray for the supernatural power. I pray for the love of Christ to be shed abroad in your hearts. Jude would say, now to him who was able to keep you. That word keep is enormously profound. And if you're sitting here this morning saying, how does that happen for me? What is the difference between, what is the difference between religion and a heart that is revolutionized by the Holy Spirit? It, it is signified by a shift in reliance. Religion sounds like I have all these rules. I have all this moralism. This is what Paul's tearing down now. You are standing behind your own morals. What you need is Jesus. What you need is an inward revolution that only the Holy Spirit can do. So many people say that Jesus came to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people live. And you can't do that by yourself. But it's all in an act of shifting our reliance to a person and not a system. Let's pray. Father, I pray right here this morning, right now, I pray that every person in this room, that you would circumcise every one of our hearts. Lord God, that you would cut away the excess. I pray, Lord God, that every person would stand here this morning, Lord God, and have the Holy Spirit do a supernatural work on their hearts. Lord, forgive every one of us. Forgive us for every word and every thought and every action that has ever dishonoured you. Forgive us, Lord, not only of the things that we know we shouldn't do, but forgive us of the things we know we should do, but we don't. Lord, I pray that you would shift every person's reliance in this place this morning. To the person, the wonderful person of Jesus Christ. We ask this in your wonderful and glorious name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook. At the Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.